You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the show. Stu Goldsmith here. This is the Comedian's Comedian podcast. And this is, I mean, I was going to say it's an episode from the archives, but that would suggest it had been released before. This is Kay Trevor Wilson, who you will know as Squirrely Dan from Letterkenny or as a brilliant, brilliant comedian in his own right with one of the most infectious and warm laughs in comedy. Um, We recorded this episode... Um, maybe I'm going to say 2017. I'm just going to plant a flag in the the timeline and say this was in Montreal in 2017. And um, uh, it went missing and it ended up on a hard drive somewhere. I came back with bundles of content. I never found it. I never released it. And I'm absolutely thrilled that in the ongoing project to rescue and organise the archive into some sort of form in order to, God knows, make one of five different types of books about stand-up, um, all, all of which remain hypothetical at the moment. I've been organising and I found this. K. Trevor Wilson is an absolute love. Um, and in these days, if you don't know him from Letterkenny, you've got to watch Letterkenny. You can find it on YouTube if in the UK. I don't think it's ever officially come out on telly here. Um, but uh, at the time of recording, it was very much in its infancy and now is on its 10th season. I think they've just finished their 10th season last year. Uh, it's really worth checking out and you will finally understand who that guy is from a bunch of memes because it's one of those shows that's gone on to uh, live. I mean, I see it on Imja.com all the time. Uh, it, it has uh, a life outside of simply being a show. It has entered the public discourse, has everything these days. Let's not get bogged down in meme chat. Uh, we're going to talk about getting comic mileage out of incidents for the sake of long form storytelling, finding out, figuring out who you are on stage. We're going to talk about loving the road and desiring a normal life at the same time and whether that's possible. No extra content on this one, but you can go to comedians, comedians dot com slash insiders for ad free episodes and all the extra content from every show that has any. So this, without further ado, uh, is the wonderful K. Trevor Wilson at long last. So K. K. Trevor, K. Trevor, I call you K. Trev, and I believe other most people most do. people do call me K. Trev, but my real name is just Trevor. Uh, the, the K is, the K a, is, is my like middle initial transplanted to the front because there was another Trevor Wilson. But you could you not have gone Trevor K. Wilson? Or is that not yeah, right? yeah, I could have. Um, but my, my agent was like, you know, there's a lot of middle initials, but there's no one really doing the front initial. No one's doing the back. 
You could have done Trevor Wilson K. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, that would have been. I think that would have the, the K would have been easier to lose at the end. Good point. Good point. I'll call you Trevor for the rest of this. But, but I, uh, I do enjoy having a friend called K Trev. It is. Uh, it, it, it's the K stands for Kingsley, which is my middle name. Oh, nice. And uh, my grandfather's name. Uh, yeah, it was just. Uh, uh, it turned out to be an accidentally good marketing tool because. There's lots and lots of Trevor Wilsons, but I'm the only K Trevor Wilson I've found so far. So nice. It helps uh, direct that internet traffic. Okay. Oh, okay. so important traffic. <laughs> so I have heard your album, Sex Cop Fire Penis. Oh, nice. Which I enjoyed immensely. Thank which I you. should say is available on iTunes and wherever else people want to buy their albums. When did you record that? Uh, 2014. Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, it was actually um, in between, uh, uh, recorded like end of August, beginning of September, in between JFL and JFL 42, uh, which is the Toronto Just for Laughs. And I did it in Kingston, Ontario, which is actually directly in between Montreal and Toronto. Uh, so I was originally going to call the album Between Festivals. Uh, but then someone was like, that's a really asshole title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like the joke, but I could see how it would look like yeah. nice. <laughs> so we, I called it Sex Cop Fire Penis instead, which is pretty much what the album's about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure enough. I touch on all those subjects. Yeah. I, I thought of the word fire penis, and then was like, geez, what could go with fire penis? And so, Oh, Sex Cop. And we've hit all the nails on the head. <laughs> now, you're... The way I describe you to people, and I believe, I mean, I, I know from your own bio, you're known as the, the Man Mountain or the self-proclaimed Man Mountain of Canadian comedy. Um, and of course, on seeing you downstairs a couple of days ago for the first time, I was like, Trevor, you're only half there. Like, you're like, you're, the way I describe you to people is, um, is like this huge bearded, barrel-chested monster with a heart of gold. Like oh, that's, thank you. Yeah, well, that's how I see you. You're not limited, you know, because we've bumped into each other only at this festival over the last couple of years. Um and uh, we will maybe get on to the, the changes to that image that you're making with your, your physical, your, your dietary changes that you're doing in a minute. Um, but where do I, where's, a good, where's a good starting point? I, I really enjoyed the album. And what I enjoyed most about the album was the freshness of the voice that you have. I felt like I hadn't heard anyone tell stories like that in a voice like yours. Oh, right on. Thanks. Oh, you're very welcome. Do you feel different amongst your peers? Do you feel like... Um, do you Are you aware of the difference in the voice that you're bringing to the stage? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I don't know anyone else doing really what I do. Uh, and what is, for the benefit of people who don't know you, how would you describe what you do? And I know that's a that's a hideous question to ask a comic, but here you can spend a bit of time yeah. actually explaining what it is. Like, well, I mean, for the most part, I'm I'm a long form storyteller, and uh, even when I do jokes, uh, they're all long form bits. Like my, like some of the the cuts on uh, on Sex Cop Fire Penis are you know eight minute long. I had to split one bit into two because it was like almost a twenty minute bit on one subject and uh uh so like definitely not too many guys in north america doing you know that much long-form story 
uh, like there's a joke in Toronto that the last thing you want to hear is Kate Trevor Wilson say, I'm just going to do one more before I go. <laughs> it was like, that's off. Oh, we were going over. Like, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I take a topic and I beat it to death. Uh, I, I get as much, uh, material as I can out of my premise. Uh, I'm a big believer that jokes aren't ever finished. We just get them to a place that we like them on stage. And it's why I've only recorded one album and I've been doing this almost 17 years is because uh, I, I don't really know if I've ever finished any of my jokes because I'll tell them a hundred times the same way. And then the hundred and first time I'll think of something I'd never thought of before and pop it in to see if it works. And uh, so it's a, uh, yeah, it was it was actually weird to retire uh, all the jokes on Sex Cop Fire Penis because it was like admitting that they were finally finished. Yeah, yeah, that's a weird. That's got to be a weird moment. I mean, one of the things I I really like about the the comic voice that you have is you are essentially um, I don't know if optimistic is the right word, but you, your good nature is really imbued <laughs> in in a lot of that stuff. Do you see what I mean? I try to be pleasant. Like, <laughs> like uh, you know, I enjoy what I do. It's uh, that's my favorite part of the day is the joke telling part. So, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm quite happy. I know some people it's their it's their therapy and it's their time to to vent and rant and and get all their venom out. But uh, for me, I'm just quite happy to be there. I just got some funny jokes I'd like to say. And I'm pleased to do it. And you're, it's not just the... I, I mean, I, that, that's clear. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with your assessment of that. But it's not just the the fact that you're enjoying yourself on stage. There is... There's sort of... Um, there's just a flavour to what you're talking about. If we look at one of the... What, remind me what the opening story... I remember what the closing story was. But remind me the, the opening section on Sex Cop. Uh, the opening section on Sex Cop... Um... I think I start into being the overweight and single is probably the yes the early stuff on Sex Cop. I do the roofie joke. Yes, you roofied yourself. Where I've roofied myself, uh, which because I'm the that joke works too because I'm probably the slowest talker in stand up comedy right now. Like I I take my fucking time. <laughs> I was getting roasted once and the guy was like it's not a foot race you can fucking try to hurry up <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah and then I started to uh, a lot of silly but it's not even self-deprecating because I talk about being awesome for being fatter than everybody <laughs> actually <laughs> yeah 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 I have a bit about fat guys being better lovers because we're soft and squishy like pillow foam there's, I tell you, I think what I'm what I'm remembering is the mugging story. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so like yeah. there's the introductory setup. There's the, this is who you are. And then where we really get a sense of who you are is, I think it's such a brilliant piece of work, this self-contained story where almost every line in it is funny. Every line is a new, like a, a kind of a, not exactly a development of the character that, that you're portraying, but the, it's like a, a reveal of the richness of the character. When you talk about just being poor, being stoned, and getting, <laughs> and getting mugged and having them steal your pager. You know, and it's like every, every kind of section of it 
It's the saddest robbery for both people involved. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like I was not in a situation where I could really afford to get robbed, and and they got so little out of all of that effort. Like it was just everyone came out with the shit end of the stick. Part I don't talk about on stage because it's not really funny, but is absolutely true is I had all my uh, roommates' rent money in my backpack at the time uh, in a like a hidden pocket, and I was going to deposit my rent money. So I had twenty dollars in my wallet, which I happily gave them because I had about two thousand dollars in a pocket in my backpack that you got away with. That I got away with. Fuck yeah! yeah. Right. Because I, when I when I opened up my backpack, it was just full of my chef clothes because I was working at a kitchen at the time. So they were like, what's in the backpack? I'm like, my laundry. Do you want my dirty fucking chef pants? And they're like, no, you can keep those. I'm like, well, thank God they didn't go reaching underneath the dirty chef pants. It was $2,000 in there. For all you criminals out there, you know, like, look deeper. <laughs> Don't just look at the surface. You're not... Doing security at the Just for Laughs Walk Around Festival. Poke <laughs> around in that bag, you'll find some things. Yeah. So, <laughs> so your so the the meter of that story is that like how long for how long were you telling that story? Uh, that happened. Um, it was a few years out of college, so I was in my in my mid twenties when I started it. When I started sort of figuring out how to make it funny on stage. Uh, it was, it definitely killed at parties. It was just one of those stories that I had to find out how to make it work. But, uh, it probably a good seven years. Okay. Of, of doing that bit and developing it. And, uh, uh, cause it just kept, cause like I, I started doing the bit when I got mugged. And then the six months later, like, you know, it happened six months later and it was, one of those great moments where I already had like the, the start of a really good bit. And then I got a phone call from the police asking me if I had any new information. And in my head, I was like, this is the ending. Yeah. Great. This is what I've been looking for. Start secretly recording the conversation. Thank you officer for giving me the fucking button on this joke. Uh, it's really, it's funny because after a while as a standup, that's really how you start looking at, life situation sometimes you just you know at some point you're in the middle of a bit and you've got to sit here and see how this finishes uh because you're not letting someone else get this joke yeah and like no one's no one's joke ever contains so then i waited to see what would happen yeah so that it would make good material (laughs) you can't say that but like said secretly what we're all doing half the time it's like fuck this could be good like so that so talk to me about the development of that piece. So you said it killed at parties. So it's kind of like you you're a is that a common thing for you that you would kind of you would work out what you're talking about socially? Do you mean you you'd be you'd become aware that something you were talking about socially was funny? Yeah. And then I, mean, this could work. I, I think I was always using the people around me as a sounding board and I and I still do. Like when I get an idea, I uh uh I bounce it off people, especially if it's like about them, you know, or if they're involved in the story, then I, I start, you know, make, making the jokes with them first to see if it's, uh, uh, to see if, if they laugh. And if like, if they laugh, then I can do it on stage because okay. you admit it, it's funny. So you can't take that back. 
<laughs> okay, yeah, right. That's a that's a nice way of doing it. So you've got there. You've 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 kind of uh, finagled them into. Yeah, they've they've accidentally admitted that they like it, but it was just one of those things because like it was in it was in like the local paper that I'd been that a local guy had been mugged. Like, okay. and uh, I mean the the you know uh, I was it was at my my parents' place. I actually. In the bed, I say it was back in my place, but I got mugged in my parents' neighborhood, and I was living in a different part of Toronto at the time. And my parents lived in like a, a pretty well-off, uh, uh, mostly white part of Toronto. And I got at the time I was living in like uh, like little Jamaica. It was like a very multicultural part of Toronto, where uh, it's like my neighbors were all Italian, Portuguese, and Jamaican immigrants for the most part. And it, it was also a neighborhood that used to be super Irish. So there was also this like weird old angry Irish contingent who were pissed off that everybody who'd moved in, like they were really sore that it wasn't Irish anymore. Um, and that was supposed to be like a really dangerous, like everybody warned me about, you know, where I was living. Like, oh, that's a dangerous part of the city. And like, I never had any problems in my neighborhood. Like everyone just. You know, I'm a giant white guy, and so if I'm walking around, most people assume I'm supposed to be there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it was one of the joys of being about 300 pounds most of your life. People don't know if you're tough, but they don't want to find out. Yeah, sure. So we but also everyone just was just really nice. You know, the, yeah. the, a lot of neighborhoods that get bad raps are still full of very nice people for the most part. And, uh, you know, the problems I ever had with my neighbors is the, one of, an old Italian guy who thought we were sabotaging his zucchini. Uh, he was just crazy. Um, but yeah, so I got mugged in my parents' neighborhood uh, by kids that had probably driven up expecting to roll like a rich white person. And they found a, a cook finishing up his shift and walking home. And... I immediately after getting mugged went to the bar that I say in the story and it was like the local bar it was karaoke night I sang some songs to make me feel better <laughs> and like I know everyone there so I was like I just got fucking mugged I started telling them all the story and uh, and they were the first person you know that I, was, I really started bouncing it off of because you know as in anything you, especially if it's a stressful situation you you make it funny so it's less stressful and so I was cracking jokes about it and just like everything about it lent itself to a bit. Like the experience getting mugged was so weird. And then the experience with the cops was so weird. And then uh, uh, my favorite part was like it got written up in like The Guardian, the Etobicoke uh, like local paper, like the free paper you get at the grocery store. And uh, uh in it, in in the, the the little note, they mentioned that uh, they'd taken my pager, uh, twenty dollars, and my cigarettes. And when I told the story to my mom, I didn't tell her that they took my cigarettes. <laughs> so my mom reads the Guardian, and then the next time I see her, she's she's got a snarky look on her face, and she goes, "You saw your the thing in the Guardian about your uh, mugging." Uh, so we're still smoking, are we? <laughs> That's what you took from that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about who, about your background. Your So what's the name of the town that you... 
Well, I, like I grew up in Toronto. Tobacco okay. is like uh, a borough, almost like it's it's okay. the, the village of Etobicoke. Uh, it was it used to be its own municipality, but then it was just absorbed into Toronto and is part of the Greater Toronto Area. Uh, but it's like yeah, the Toronto mayor is the mayor of Etobicoke now, so gotcha. it's, it's it's Toronto proper. But when I was when I was a kid, it was its own separate you know city technically, Etobicoke, which is just you know. We're attached by the subway to Toronto. We're in between Toronto and Mississauga. Uh, and yeah, it's like, uh, I lived in a, a pretty white, well-off neighborhood. Uh, we were like the, we were like the not rich family. I can't say that we were poor, but we were definitely the not, not the richest family in our neighborhood. Like none of my siblings got cars as gifts, whereas that happened for some of my friends. Okay, like, okay. Uh, you know, yeah. When I wanted a television, I had to get a job and buy it, whereas other people, it was a birthday gift. Sure. You know? What did you folks do? Uh, my dad uh, was a stockbroker uh, and financial planner, and my mom had been a teacher, but uh, when they started having kids, she just became a full-time mom. Uh, and there was, there was, you know, four of us, so we kept her pretty busy. I'm the second of four. Okay. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't remember wanting for everything, but I do remember seeing cooler shit on other lawns, like. <laughs> <laughs> and you were uh, a child actor at one point. Yeah, I got, uh, I got into the business, I guess, kind of early when I was about 13, 14, I'd been doing school plays and like drama classes at the Young People's Theater in, in Toronto, and uh, sort of always had an affinity for. I, I was a big John Candy fan, and when I was seven, I figured out that that was his job. Okay, yeah, yeah. Like it all sort of clicked in what jobs were, and because uh, I was like, why do some people get to be in movies and some people don't? Like you know, as a kid, you don't understand it. You know, first, you got to realize none of this is real, and then you got to figure out that that's what a job is. And, and I was like, that's got to be the best job ever. So I, I really wanted to do that. And uh, so I started doing like, you know, uh, kid acting classes and uh, did a, got into a performance arts high school, okay. uh, uh, the Etobicoke School of the Arts. And uh, I was actually in my first year at high school, I was in ninth grade but I'd gone back to my grade school to help them uh, with uh, a production of uh, Much Ado About Nothing they were doing. And they, they'd asked me to come in and play Dogberry because uh, I I'd, I'd had a bit of experience with Shakespeare before and could help, you know, uh, uh, some of the younger kids who were going to have a tough time getting their tongues around this for the first time. And uh, one of the girls was already working professionally in the school, uh, her parents actually like put on the the, the shows. They were uh, her mom was uh, a bit of you know, like classic stage mom. Like all three kids had been in the like were in the business. And okay, I believe at one point she had had aspirations of, of acting, and her and her husband put on the, the school productions every year. So her agent had come to see her in it and saw me uh, throwing myself down a flight of stairs for cheap laughs in the third act and uh, gave me a business card. And and got me uh, got me started acting professionally. I think uh, my my first jobs were I did a Canadian film company short 
uh, called Day Pass about okay. uh, a guy who gets uh, gets gets a day pass out of prison to go to a family function and then uh, decides he's going to cut out on the the on the day pass and try to escape. And it's like a, a small town, like family wedding, like the 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 gal's already seven months pregnant, and I played uh, the older brother to the main character, who was a little kid who like, uh, maybe his father's son, but might actually be the uh, uncle from prison's son. Yeah, okay, gotcha. Never ambiguous on that, and I was the older brother who was just sneaking booze uh, at any opportunity he had. Uh, and then my other job after that was uh, Goosebumps on the, the kids' horror series. Yeah, okay. Based on the R.L. Stein novel. I worked for them twice as a teenager, and the first time was I was cut out of uh, The Haunted Mask Part 2, which was an hour-long Goosebumps special. Uh, and I played a bully, which made up most of my early resume. Okay. Uh, you know, I was a pretty big kid. Like, sure. Uh, Were I, your siblings big kids as well? Um... Not as big as me. My brother's taller than me, but he's, like, really lean. He's got, okay. like, a, a Michael Phelps build. Okay. Uh, my, my sisters, I mean, both look like they could, you know, play some serious rugby. Uh, they're going to get mad at me if they ever hear this. But they're, <laughs> they're broad shoulders, ladies. They could whip a guy into a fireman's carry. <laughs> uh, well, you know, my, my dad's a big guy, and, and my mom's a stocky lady. Like, you know... Uh, I wouldn't fuck with. I'm still not 100% sure I could take my mom in a fight. <laughs> okay. She's got like old farm girl strength and it's yeah. really weird, but like she'll grab you and she knows she's your mom. So she knows all your pressure points and weaknesses. <laughs> like I, I, there's, there's still sometimes where I'll be like visiting my mom and dad and she'll like grab me and pin me down. Uh, Cause she thinks it's hilarious. And I'm like, like part of me is like, ha ha ha. And part of me is like, fuck, am I going to have to like, tell my mom? <laughs> To get out of this, so uh, you so you ended up playing a lot of bullies because you, you were a physically imposing kid. Yeah, and I, and I, I and I got this voice when I was like thirteen. Yeah, uh, I just I I went from a soprano in the school choir to this. No way! Like overnight. And it's not a so it's not a smoking, shouting, heavy metal kind of. No, I've uh, ever since I'm 13, I've had this like it's gotten deeper, it's gotten yeah. fuller with uh, the abuse I've done to it. But uh, from pretty much since I was 13 on, I've had this like ridiculously deep man voice, uh, and it aged me as a kid actor. It was hard to, to you know buy me as some roles. Like you weren't gonna have me be frightened teen because I did not sound very frightened I, <laughs> okay. I, I just sounded surly like okay. a, it was grumpy uncle child um, so yeah bullies was the perfect job for me to play I did that a lot I, I, I had a good two years where I did a lot of TV movies where I beat up the handicapped uh, that was my that was my <laughs> that was my typecast for a while uh, my, my grandma was always so upset by the roles I played because my mom would show her everything I did, and my, my grandma's show would be like, you know, you sh I don't like it when you're so mean on the television. And, and I was like, well, you know, Grandma, it's just a character I'm playing. They're paying me to, to play the bully. And she's like, well, you should tell them that you're nice. Oh, that's very sweet. That's some classic <laughs> grandmother. My other grandma was actually, like, 
a performer herself. She'd been, her and her twin sister were a song and dance team. Uh, and, and they started in their hometown of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, the turn of the century. And That's the most Canadian place I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't get much more Canadian than Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. It was named after the Moose Jaw that they found there when they built the town. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and her and her twin sister, they actually learned dance by correspondence. Uh, a dance school in New York would send them this like folded up mat and they'd unfold it on their floor and it would have all the dance steps no. plotted out for them and that's how they'd learn their routines was just going step like on a giant twister mat almost okay and uh they performed like in and around saskatchewan and, and uh when they were 18 they did an alaskan showboat cruise with a bunch of other performers went up around the alaskan coast and uh, they briefly had their own dance school in Vancouver, but uh, uh, sort of the Depression got rid of things like dance classes. And uh, they pretty much performed for uh, you know, food and shelter for through the, the Depression years. Okay. Uh, you know, they... Uh, you could barter entertainment for, for food and, and lodging, Back then, so they would, you know, tour around and not uh, so different from contemporary stand-up comedy. Yeah, and uh, they do those. Uh, they actually actually told me a, a, a great story when I was a kid, and I never truly appreciated it till I was a comedian. And they had a ventriloquist on the showboat cruise that they did, and they were doing a show up uh, probably around British Columbia. And uh, the first two rows uh, at the, the performance one night were filled by uh, uh, natives from the nearby uh, reservation. And uh, just two rows of like, big, burly natives. And, and the ventriloquist is up there doing his routine. And, and the natives were stone-faced during the entire show. Just no emotion, staring him dead in the eyes the whole time he's doing his routine and zero laughter and uh and he's sweating bullets like he this is the you know he thinks he's gonna get uh he's gonna get killed after the show and after the show uh, a large group of native men uh approach him and he's, he's quite frightened and uh they come up and say uh we just wanted to let you know we really enjoyed your show and he was like, well, that's, that's wonderful, but why didn't any of you laugh? And, and they said, uh, well, we didn't want to interrupt. Oh. And he was like, well, next time, feel free to laugh. <laughs> yeah. We will. And then they all laughed. <laughs> oh, my Lord. So this is Trevor, a joy to be around, a very, very funny man, and we will get back to him very soon. Uh, Now, I mentioned at the top of the show, no extras from this uh, episode, but if you are inclined to support the show, and some people support the show and never get round, I see every so often I log in and I see the back end, what we refer to as the back end, um, and I see that some people are supporting the show and not getting hold of the extra content, the ad-free episodes and all of the the sort of Zoom uh, specials that we've done with, like, uh, you know, opportunities for you 
you to ask your comedy heroes questions, nor indeed the fabulous self-help for comedian special with real psychologist, real Amanda Donnett. Um, but all of those things are available to you if you would like to support the show for just £2 a month or as much more than that as you can handle. Everyone gets the same stuff because, God damn it, we're trying to carve out some sort of niche for fairness uh, in the world. Now, I'm going to chat to you in a little post-amble at the end. Here is a little announcement, though. I'm off to South by Southwest in nary a week. Am I using the word nary correctly there? God knows. Um, But I can now officially, for the first time, tell you that I'm going to be interviewing Jim Gaffigan, Dulcie Sloan and Eddie Pepitone will return to this podcast. I'll try and fit in some additional peripheral chats while I'm there if I can. Um, But uh, those are my three biggie live ones. And Jim Gaffigan, you don't need me to tell you, he's absolutely enormous. What a huge, huge uh, comic and so so funny I was catching up with uh, Mr Universe his special I think from about 10 years ago now on Spotify and he has a new Netflix special out now so jump on the Comedians Comedian Podcast Facebook group um, which you can find by using your uh, verve imagination and ability to search for things um, and uh, uh, get in there jump on that post I shall pin the post in but a moment and uh, you can uh, send me your questions please for excellent stand up uh, Jim Gaffigan excellent stand up and uh, Daily Show correspondent Dulcie Sloan, who has one of the most incredible opening gambits uh, in stand-up I think I've ever seen. <laughs> More on that perhaps when I speak to her. And of course, Eddie Pepitone returned to the show. Cannot wait to, to talk to Eddie again. So um, go to the ComCom group, ask me your questions there and get revising now. Oh, one final time. Just bloody do yourself a favour and watch Letterkenny. That's what I say. Now, um, that is all of that. I'll post Amble at you at the end. You can follow uh, Trevor Wilson, K. Trevor Wilson, to give him his full unreal name. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, K. Trevor Wilson, on Instagram, K. Trevor Wilson. And who knows whether that dot's required, but you give it a razz. Um, or K. Trevor Wilson, all one word, dot com. I mean, come on, it's a, it's a URL. They're always all one word, right? Back to Trev. Tell me about your so the transition from acting to stand up comedy. Did you ever see yourself being a stand up when you were a kid? Did you what were your what were your kind of reference points for what stand up was? I always loved stand up. I, mean, I I loved comedy in all of its forms, and and as as much as I liked acting, like drama's easy compared to comedy. You know, give someone a disease, you're golden. Like. It's not hard to make people uh, feel sad, but uh, to make people uh, feel happy uh, well is is a lot harder. So I've, I'd always been... Uh, my dad did introduce me to comedy that I probably shouldn't have seen at an early age. Like, I think I was about seven the first time he showed me Life of Brian. Okay. Uh, and uh, so, like, I was... And and I I don't know why, but I got it even when I didn't get it. Yes, like, there's something glorious about grown ups being silly. Uh, my dad always said that I had like an innate sense for what was funny. Like when I was okay. a kid watching shows with him, I was laughing at the appropriate parts. Okay, but there was no way that I would understand the reference gotcha. that they were it, using. It was just the rhythm was making you go, "This should be a funny." Bit. I didn't know why it was funny, but I knew it was funny, and and, uh, and that's why I think one of the reasons he started showing me stuff that I, 
you know, that you wouldn't normally show a kid, a child of seven, because it's like, well, he's, he's going to get it. Or he's going to laugh. So he's going to have fun. And, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I was obsessed with Saturday Night Live as soon as I discovered it. I'd stay up late, and if I couldn't stay up late, I'd, uh, I'd tape it. Uh, on, on alternating weeks, I'd rent Eddie Murphy's stand-up, like either Raw or Delirious, and, and, you know, sleep in the basement on the weekends and watch that over and over again. And I had, like... Uh, uh, Stephen Wright and, and uh, Robin Williams and George Carlin tapes and uh, Bill Cosby tapes and uh, like anything that was comedy I would like I'd stay up late and watch A&E's because they had Evening at the Improv and Caroline's Comedy Hour and uh, uh, Did you like, used to watch Just for Laughs? Yeah, yeah I mean you could not it was yeah. uh, it's uh, it's weird. I've been watching Just for Laughs my whole life, and it was an, it was another thing that was uh, I, I never realized until I was in the business that the not all the comedians were the same kind of famous. Yeah, right. That's a really interesting observation because I remember I remember watching Just for Laughs as a kid, and that's part of why it's so exciting to be here now in this city with yeah. people everywhere. You know, um. And that's a really good point. I was just kind of like, look at all this stuff. This is what the rest of the world is enjoying. With exactly that, with yeah. no sense that like, oh, like, this guy is a tryout first thing and this guy's been going 20 years. Yeah, but yeah if you were on the show, I think in my head, you were all the same level of, of comedy famous. And uh, and I'd be like, oh man, I, like, I remember like, starting out and going to, to comedy shows and like, oh man, that, I've seen that guy on Just for Laughs. Like, oh my God, he's... That guy's going to be amazing, and I know this because I've seen him on Just for Laughs. And yeah. Only the very best are on Just for Laughs. And and then you meet people that you, you've been looking up to for years, and it's like, oh, man, you're like not f- much further ahead from me, and I just started. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Or you see someone massive now, and you realize, oh, when I saw you then, that was like your first yeah. TV show and just your first TV spot, and you were freaking out about it. Yeah, it was like I was like, oh man, like not everyone is the same kind of famous. <laughs> and are you ambitious? Did uh, you when you were watching that stuff as a kid, were you thinking I want to do this and I want to be on TV doing this? I knew I want like, yeah, I I knew I wanted to to do it and and it just made sense to do it like on TV. That was I just assumed that was part of it. You know, when I was a kid, uh, uh, watching it and, uh, you know, but, uh, being in the business since I was 14, the, the, uh, of course, when I started stand up, I wanted to get to the point where I was doing it on TV because I already had a sense that I was in a business and that one hand could feed the other and that my acting could help my stand up and my stand up could help my acting. Uh, my only problem is I tried to do too many things. Uh, like I, I had a sketch troupe for 10 years called Smells Like the 80s. Uh, and, uh, I, I like I'd been acting. I had, it was doing stand up and then I had to, had to have an actual job because none of those things pay very well. Uh, <laughs> what was your actual job? Was that when you were a cook? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I started out, uh, as a, as a waiter and then that made me hate people. Uh, and it was starting to affect my stand up, So I, I became a cook. So I didn't what? have to talk directly to customers. Why did it make you hate people? Uh, cause people are awful. 
when I was a, when I was a server working at a restaurant, like so many times people would unload on their surfers and it's, it's their fucking fault. Like it's their bullshit. And I remember one lady, like I, I came out to a large table and I served them and there was a, you know, a couple and, and a shit ton of fucking kids and I bring them all their food at the same time. And then probably like 15, 20 minutes later, the lady stops me and is like, ah, my food is cold. Take it back and get it reheated. And all I could think was like, well, yeah, it's cold now. It was hot when I brought it to you. Like, don't get mad at me because you had to chase around your shitty kids and didn't get a chance to eat your food when it was hot. Like, I'll gladly reheat it for you, but it's not my fucking fault your kids don't know how to behave at jackasters. And that's an... When I was a kid, I don't remember getting out of my chair and running around a restaurant. If you fucking, if you were, you were lucky to be out. You sat the fuck down and pretended you were, you, going out to dinner was the time you all had to pretend you were normal. <laughs> <laughs> so you were, so you wanted to be in, in the kitchen to get away from the people. What was your reaction to situations like that? Were you getting angry with that woman? Were you having to kind of bite your tongue well, no, like I, I knew that I, I knew that if I wanted a tip, I wasn't going to say anything. Like you know, in my head, there's three hundred things I'd love to tell that woman about how she's living her life, but I'm going to keep it inside and go to the kitchen and get her food reheated because uh, it's a service job. <laughs> uh, I was also heavily medicated, so. <laughs> what do you mean in the sense of weed? Yeah, I was doing a. Well, I, I was in a when I was working as a server. I was in the middle of a pretty big acid phase, so okay. <laughs> I was expanding my horizons at that time. This was all, this was all very small and meaningless in the grand scope of hallucinogenics. Okay, uh, <laughs> that's a, that's surprising. Me. I don't know if I had you pegged as a. And what is that? Was that from a from a a, a desire to? I mean, people get into acid for lots of different reasons. One of them is boredom. Was it like if you're a kind of small town Canadian guy, were you sort of bored with what was around you, or was it more? No, because I was in, I was in Toronto. Like I was in uh, I was in the the biz, biggest city in the country. Uh, I think it was just available. <laughs> it was available and not really habit forming and kind. I mean, I wasn't doing it every day, but you know, more often than uh, than probably. Uh, uh, you know, like, it was like, you know, maybe once or twice a month I was, you know, dropping acid and it helped me stay awake. I'd, uh, I'd take acid and write, like, uh, write college papers. How did you do in college? I got, I got an 80% on a humanities essay. I really? wrote on, uh, I wrote high on acid. Uh, it was on whether new reproductive technologies fell under the humanistic or mechanistic paradigm of science. Wow. And I that argued... That sounds pretty LSD. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, this is a good uh, paper for fucking drugs. And uh, I argued they fell under the mechanistic, not because of the nature of the science, but because of the nature of the reaction to the science. I don't understand the terms involved, but I understand the uh, uh, combination of words. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, and uh, I got you quoted George Carlin in my closing argument. Uh, George Carlin said, "Everything comes from nature. We're part. Man is part of nature. Therefore, everything we make came from nature." And like sometimes in nature, you got to stab some monkeys in the eyes to cure some diseases. <laughs> <laughs> so you were uh, you. 
you were doing the cook you were, you were being a cook or a waiter to make money whilst doing your sketch troupe whilst doing your stand up and you said you kind of you feel now that you'd spread yourself too thin yeah because uh, it was impossible to give enough time to any one thing because uh, like you're working in restaurants so especially when I was going to school and trying to do all these things but even when school's done you're working in a restaurant so you're you're uh, if you're working day shifts those you can't th- those are auditions you're not going to yep. be able to go to and when you're working night shifts those are the those are, are sets you're not getting under your belt and uh and then so, you know, you're trying to give equal time to both, so you're trying to create a balance, and then you got a sketch troupe, so you got to make sure you're getting together, you know, at least once a week to write material, and then you got to rehearse the shit, and then, you know, uh, get everybody, truck everybody out, do a fucking show, and, like, you, you, you know, trying to organize a sketch troupe is like herding cats. It's it's impossible to do and it it relies on everybody being the exact same amount of motivated yeah for it to really work and uh as much as i love sketch and doing sketch we couldn't keep uh, like there's three of us that stayed through the whole thing but we kept losing members uh here and there and uh as much fun as we had eventually just got to a point where it was you know we got to make a decision uh, are we going to just are we, are we going to keep fooling ourselves that they're going to want to remake Kids in the Hall with our sketch troupe or yes okay of course Kids in the Hall would be like, they were the big they were the Canadian Monty Python yeah yeah there's you know you, you reach the wall and it's like there's only so much we're going to do as a group yeah you know uh, like unless we all give everything we've got into this and that's a big fucking gamble so uh especially with even in a double act that's hard yeah let alone a big group so we all started you know a few years before we broke up we were already you know going in our separate directions to do our our own things and um it just sort of came to the realization that i had to pick something because uh i i hadn't put enough time into my stand-up career to really get very far mm-hmm. uh, uh my acting you know I, I was getting i was getting good recurring spots here and there but uh i still felt at a point where i hadn't caught up to my voice yet like yep. even in my 20s um and uh you know like i i, I played older than i was still and, uh, you know, I, I was a big, you know, weird-looking guy. I kept trying to change my look for a while there to sort of fit what was going, and then... For acting work? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh, I just said, I just said, fuck it, and stopped shaving and cutting my hair, and was like, if they want me to shave and cut it, I'll shave and cut it. But yeah. I've just, I, I'm just stopping trying to impress casting agents with haircuts. And uh, I just realized that stand-up was the one I could control. Stand-up was, uh, uh, it, it relied on only me. There was no, no, like, you, you go at an audition and you never know who you're up against. You know, you never know what their story is or what the what they're really looking for on it. There's all these factors that you have no control over. Mm. Uh, uh 
So unless I wanted to, you know, write plays and star in them or, you know, create some sort of vehicle for myself, the one thing I could control was stand-up. Your producer, director, writer, star, it's all you. If it works, it's all you. If it fails, it's all you. So I, I just threw myself, I put everything else on the back burner. I started working exclusively day shifts to leave every night free and just... Uh, started living in stand-up, uh, you know, shows. I was if I if I wasn't on, I was watching. Uh, and I, you know, there was a time where I was doing like you know, uh, I was doing at least one set every night. Like, uh, and that's you, that can't be easy in Toronto. It wasn't at the time. No, like I, I was I was running around. Like there was a lot of shows, but not as many as there are now. And uh, so, I, like, when I was averaging a show, like, you know, like, I was doing three, four sets, you know, on some nights, which was, like, tough to do. I was driving out of town. I'd borrow my parents' car to give comics a lift for stage time, just anything I could do to, to get in front of people and, uh, and get more experience. And, uh, yeah, just devoted myself to becoming a stand-up and... It it, uh, it took a, a probably about seven years after I made that decision to like. Well, I, I shouldn't say to make that because like seven years after I was like, okay, stand up is the one I'm I'm focusing on, uh, and then uh, and then like probably uh, I got my first festival about three years after going to day shifts, like just having the nights completely free for, uh, for stand-up. When you say you got your first festival, you mean this one? No, the just first, any, any comedy festival? first festival I did was the Winnipeg Comedy Festival. Okay. Uh, and uh, I got it from doing a show at the, uh, the Underground Comedy Club, which is like a, a weed-friendly venue in Toronto. Okay. And... Uh, Boyd Banks, uh, uh, a true comics comic in Toronto, he uh, he boasts about being banned from most of the clubs in the country. And Boyd would host a show every two weeks at the Underground, and occasionally he would be high on mushrooms when he hosted. And uh, I'm probably talking out of school, but uh, Boyd won't mind. Uh, and uh, uh, it was... Actually, uh, right after Erwin Barker, who the Homegrown uh, Award is, is named after here at uh, uh, Just for Laughs, Erwin Barker passed uh, from cancer, I think, in 2011. And uh, every uh, comics came from all over the country into Toronto to go to his memorial and funeral. And uh, Boyd had a show that same weekend, so at the memorial he invited like all the all the the old comics out to the to his weed show mm-hmm. and uh um earlier in the week he had asked me to come do a spot at the show but we were both uh smoking pot so he forgot and i showed up to the show and uh, uh boyd uh was like oh I, I totally forgot i totally forgot i booked you uh and he also had a friend who had a, a collection of different uniforms from different jobs. 
Okay. So he was wearing like a vintage Dickie D ice cream man uh, uniform also. Uh, <laughs> so Boyd's dressed as the ice cream man and he's like, uh, he's played a featured zombie in several George Romero okay. flicks. Like he's a very like, interesting looking guy. Okay. <laughs> and he's like, babe, I totally forgot I booked you. Uh, he goes, let me see where I can fit you on. And he disappears. And then he comes back. He's like, I'm going to have to put you on at the end. Uh, so I, th- I think he told me I was following like Mike Wilmot and Tim Steves or some crazy combination of Canadian guys who've been doing it far longer than me. He always did that to me. Boyd would forget he booked me and then I'd show up. Or he was just, you know, giving me trial by fire. But he might have been pretending to forget. But every time I showed up, he was like, oh, I totally forgot you're on the show. So I'm going to put you after Kenny Robinson and Scott Thompson. You know? Okay. Uh, uh, always, you know, always big, uh, big legendary guys. And how was me. that on those occasions? How would you feel about that? Well, at first I'd be like, ah, oh, fuck. And then it's like, uh, but then I do well. So, <laughs> and why would you do well? Um, but I mean, at, at, at that point when Boyd had that show going, uh, I'd already figured out who I was. So it was, uh, you know, uh, I had, uh, I had the material and I had the, uh, uh, I had the the I was aware that I was the the storyteller guy. Okay. So, so I, I I wasn't worried about doing the time. It's just like ah, oh, you know, you never want to follow the killer or you know a, a killer. Uh, like I or you know I just wanted to work on new stuff today. Like now I have yeah. to now I have to do the the really good jokes. Now you've got to bring your Wilmot following a game. And uh, so. That night after Irwin's memorial, uh, I, I did. Uh, he put me on last, and I did uh, like a fifteen-minute bit about going to a swingers club uh, with with a random woman who'd approached me after a show, and uh, uh, and it did well. And then afterwards, I met uh, Al Ray, uh, who's now uh, Lara Ray. He's uh, uh, transitioned. So, but at the time, Al uh, was artistic director of the Winnipeg Fest and uh, uh, came up to me after the show and we got uh, to talking and the whole point of the Winnipeg Fest is they do themed galas. So every, everyone's set is on a theme and, you know, like obviously you can talk for a long, long time on one subject. Mm-hmm. So do you have any more stories like that that are a bit shorter? And uh, Al was... Uh, uh, you know, went to bat for me and uh, uh, got me into the the 2011 Winnipeg Fest. Um, yeah, doing doing the story from the album about uh, setting my house on fire. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, did I did that bit on the the misfortune? That was it. Misfortune tellers was the clever name. Okay. It, was all, it was all stories about bad luck. Okay, or okay. All, or all bits of material about bad luck. So. I'd had the misfortune of setting my parents' kitchen on fire, but so that yeah, that had been my my first uh, my first festival. Um, and when you're assembling a story, when you're polishing a story, what sorts of things are you? Or when you're when you're kind of selecting a story, are there things that strike you as this is particularly me? Like this is a particularly K. Trevor Wilson take on a subject, or it's a particularly 
a particularly you approach to the the telling of the story? Um, I mean, if it makes me laugh, I'm going to try to do it on stage now. Like that's the that's just sort of the rule. Like uh, I have to warn my friends sometimes. Like this is going to be a bit because uh, it's really funny what's happening right now. Uh, and it, it, the, it, I, I, it's just it, it's going to come out sounding like me because I'm telling it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And and what are the? I mean, is there any kind of conscious decision making in like when you're honing a story? If you've got something, you're like, okay, that works. Mm-hmm. Is there? Do you ever sit down and rough it out on a bit of paper and go? I, I always work it out on stage. Okay. Uh, on stage or you know, like with with people, like with other in conversation with comics. But uh, mostly, it's on stage that. that I take the idea on there and just start talking it out and and uh, seeing what hits. And then, you know, sometimes, you know, buddy will come in and be like, oh, you know, like here's a tag or say this instead of that. Mm-hmm. But uh, with, with any story, because the, the first story I, I really did on stage was the fire story, the, the uh, setting my parents' kitchen on fire, because it, it had uh, happened in my second year of college and my folks were on vacation in Cuba with my brother and, and my younger brother and sister. And uh, the, I had some friends over because they left us all this food. And I was like, you know, let's cook up this food because they're get, coming back tomorrow. And uh, we were, that's when we were cooking French fries and fucking went outside, came in. It was on fire. And uh, my, my one buddy had actually gone to the store to get buns and came back. And the fire department was in there. And he was like, I just went to the fucking store. Like, when did this fire happen? And, uh, like, everything about it was just so ridiculous. And it had happened, that, you know, like, with two friends there. So the next time we were all hanging out, you know, my friends were like... Trevor, you got to tell them about the fucking you trying to kill us in your fucking kitchen. And it just became the story that I had to tell at every party about burning down my parents' okay, okay. kitchen. And, uh, and the whole neighborhood came out because uh, like, we were standing on the lawn and there's three fire trucks in front of the house. So all the neighbors are coming out and, and they're, you know, like they're all coming up to me like, what happened? And it's like, I don't know. These firemen just came into my house. <laughs> Like, what do you think happened? Like, and, and, you know, I remember, and my parents had just remodeled the kitchen, too. So oh. the questions everyone was asking was, like, uh, the new kitchen? It's like, no, somehow they destroyed the old kitchen. <laughs> uh, and then the other question, everyone was like, are, are your parents still in Cuba? And it's like, they're in a plane now oh. coming back. And oh. I have set fire to their house. Um on the upside, uh, with the insurance uh, money, they were able to uh, replace the wallpaper that they previously couldn't afford to replace in the uh, dining room. Every clout? Because it was silk wallpaper that my mom had gotten on sale from BB Bargoons when they were going out of business. And uh, she was never going to get silk wallpaper at that price again. Uh, my mom's friend started asking me to come over and cook french fries in their bathroom so they could get the new toilet. <laughs> And my dad got the fridge he wanted because the okay uh, he got he got the fridge with ice that makes its own ice ah oh, which is yeah, was, I think that was my dad's life goal for a long time <laughs> yeah. to have a fridge I'm the same with the corner sofa and <laughs> I want a bed that tilts I, uh, <laughs> oh that'll be alright that'll be alright so what how much of um but when I oh sorry oh, I just, sorry go on. when I um when I put it on stage it wasn't 
funny on stage. Mm-hmm. It was funny at parties, but on stage it was it was lacking. And uh, and I, it was, at, over time, because it took me about a full year to make it funny, and it was learning uh, that I didn't have to tell every part of the story. Yes, that's it. Yeah, absolutely. Because like we we have this need, you know, sort of feeling that we have to be honest about everything. But being honest and giving every detail are different. And so I started realizing if it, if it's not funny, I can just cut it out. Like it doesn't have to be in there. Because I was talking about my two friends being there with me when I set the house on fire. Yes, sure. And uh, like my one friend was in the other room watching TV, and I used to in the story, you know, talk about going to get Jen and being like, there's an emergency. And she was like, oh, but there's a really good friends on. And, uh, you know, and, and as much as they were like, I enjoyed it, it, it never worked with the audience. So yeah, like, because the jeopardy has to be, you've done this on your own. Yeah. So, so Jen and Andrew were removed from the story cause they weren't, uh, funny. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, they, they, it was just a real, like if it's not, if it's not funny I and mean, if it's not moving the story forward, if it's just like useless exposition, get rid of it because it's just eating up. It's just eating up time and attention. And then once I'd taken all the stuff that wasn't funny and wasn't necessary to the story, I was left with like a pretty good bit. And then, uh, then I started filling it in with jokes then like you know it's like okay well like we can i can make a joke about this thing there i you know make a joke here and then like what's the best way to compare this like what is the best way to establish this visual like what's the funniest way to say a fireball came out of the top of the uh the pot and uh and then i just started adding things like that you know hadn't previously been there like uh, you know, none of the firemen ever called me a fucking idiot. Sure. Uh, but it's funny if they did. Sure, uh, sure. Um, the cop did suggest I just have a salad. Like, that part was 100% real, and, and but God bless that cop for making it a very bad joke at someone's expense. It was wholly unprofessional of that police officer, but did help the bit out uh, yeah. immensely. Um, yeah, and it was, you know, I, I found myself over explaining the bit. And once I took it down to just exactly what it needed to be, and then, uh, just filling it with jokes, uh, it, it, it took off running. It, it got me, got me a festival. Uh, and, uh, I actually at one point had a, had a, a company that sells fire safety equipment uh asked me if they could use the 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 joke a recording of their joke in their fire extinguisher safety classes as a demonstration of of uh why you why fire extinguishers are important yeah and uh, <laughs> did you let them? I did. I did. It's like as long as you purchase the album, uh, like that's yeah, yeah, that's fine. Because they really didn't have a business model, and I didn't have any sort of business model to be like, how do I lease you my fucking? Yeah, sure. <laughs> like how do I how do I enforce this? Like yeah, 
as I understand it, one of the things that a lot of Canadians do is leave. A lot of Canadian comics leave. Yeah. People go out, they come to the UK or they go to the States and then they come back. Did you do that? Have you always, have you always stayed in Toronto? I've, I've never moved. I've never had, a, I've never lived in a different city. I've lived in Toronto my whole life. Uh, I've thought about it. Like, uh, for a while when like the acting was quiet, there seemed to be more work out in Vancouver and I thought about going out there. Uh, but then there'd always be like something would happen that would keep me at home. Uh, I, I've gone down to the States a few times, uh, like mostly LA to visit and, and I like visiting, but I, I don't, I don't feel as comfortable there. Um, what what what's that about? Well, uh, part of it is because by the time I started to go down there, I had so much going on in Canada that going down there, I was like, I, I was twiddling my thumbs, like I was mm-hmm. bored. I, you know, there, I could get on shows, but not enough to keep myself occupied, and I didn't have anything to do really during the day because uh, I, I, you know, I was just visiting and I didn't have. Uh, a life there and the people I knew all were doing shit and I was just you know I was just sort of I was just antsy uh, and like you know my family's in Toronto my now I got a girl in Toronto it's uh, uh, there's a lot of anchors and and I'm you know I think I'm, I'm I felt like when I was going down to LA I, I was like I was going down there to try to get more work but I was turning down work to go to LA yeah to try to get work. So it's like, well, that's counterproductive. Like, I'm just going to take this work. Yeah. Uh, so. I, I feel like I understand all those reasons, but I think it's interesting that you said you didn't feel comfortable there. Yeah. Um, I mean, every time I go back, I know more and more people. And uh, uh, you can. it's easier to make plans. It's easier to, like, you know, sure. go out for lunch with somebody. And, and I, I know the city better, so I can... You know, like I, I can figure out where I am. I can navigate. Uh, um, but yeah, like you know, going down to LA, staying at, uh, at a friend's house or, or an Airbnb, and uh, you know, and, and while it's nice, or like you know, sometimes I'd rent an apartment with like a, a couple dudes, and we'd all be like splitting one <laughs> one apartment in LA for a while, and. Uh, it was yeah. It was just like like ah fuck like I, I don't have to do this. Yeah, yeah. And you don't. I mean, you don't seem to. Uh, or do you have that that same kind of wanderlust that a lot of comedians have? Like when you hear about like, oh man, maybe you're doing enough traveling within Canada. It's big enough. You can just be on the road a lot. But I think one of the one of the things that comedy affords us is the ability to travel and see the world. I, I love the road. I love the road. I love the fact that I get paid to go all over the place. And, and I especially love it when it's a place I never thought about going to. Yeah, yeah. And and you go there and you find out it's just lovely. Uh, uh, I love that, that shit. But, uh, you know, I've, I've also got a desire for something that resembles a normal life. Like... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I like going on the road, but I also like coming home and having a stretch. Uh, I, I don't mind being in one place for for a certain amount of time, too. 
and uh, the the TV show is, is kind of good because I get to be in one place, but I'm still on the road because we shoot on location. Yes. So. So this is Letterkenny. Yeah, yeah. And tell us a little bit about that because I'm like I said, I'm, I I remember you mentioning it last time, or someone mentioning it about you. And I've only just caught, I just literally caught the first, I would recommend anyone listening to this, just watch the first five minutes of the first episode. It's available online. The writing is fantastic. Oh, Jared and Jacob have written probably 80% of the episodes. Uh, uh, they know what they're doing. Well, they got they got uh, an award for it. They won the uh, Writers Guild of Canada Award and a Canadian Screen Award for uh, for Best Writing on a Comedy. Uh, we actually picked up uh, best uh, uh, television comedy at the CSAs this awesome. year, which is okay. Uh, and how did you get involved with that project? Did they know you? Uh, I knew the producers, okay. um, New Metric Media, uh, Mark and Pat, who run that. Uh, I met them here actually, just for laughs years ago, and they approached me after seeing uh, my stand-up and asked me to uh, develop an idea for a show based on my comedy to pitch them. And um, I pitched them a couple ideas here and there, and uh, uh, nothing that they ever really, really bid on. You know, it just wasn't the right fit, but uh, they still very much wanted to work together. And uh, Letterkenny started out was originally as a, as a Twitter account called Listy Problems, Okay. Uh, run by two friends, uh, Jared Kiso and his best friend Jordan, uh, about their hometown of Listool, Ontario, which is like out in Kitchener Waterloo area, a town of five thousand people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, farm town, ta- farming community mostly, and uh, also got a lot of churches, from what I remember. It's got like way too many churches for okay. the amount of people that live in Listool. And uh, they had this this Twitter account where they just wrote you know, fake problems that people from Listowel might complain about. And um, Jared noticed one day that the they had 15,000 followers for a account making fun of a town of 5,000 people. <laughs> so he's like, so there's a bit of a bigger market than just Listowel yeah. for small town kind of stuff. So Jared uh, was an actor, Jordan was not in the business. Um, to Jared asked Jordan if he could take the concept and turn it into sketches. So Jared wrote out uh, a, a series of uh, uh, sketches that were Letterkenny problems and um, an extension of the Listowel problems idea, but they took the name Letterkenny, uh, the Irish town uh, of Letterkenny, of course. Uh, but there was also briefly a Letterkenny, Ontario, which was a mining town, which okay. is now pretty much uh, abandoned. It's just, a, you know, there's like the small remnants of, of Letterkenny left there. So it was, it was a, you know, a real sounding place that we couldn't get in trouble for, or that he couldn't get in trouble for using, roughly from around the, the same region. So a good, you know, fake location. And the original sketches were Jared and uh, his best friend Nathan Dales doing like straight to camera, just alternating, uh, you know, giving examples of, of small town letter county problems. Okay. And uh, um, they they took off like the, they the, those sketches started getting like crazy hits. I think. This is like 400 million views a piece at this point. Jesus. On, on those two sketches. But 
they they started taking off and Jared wrote two more sketches and uh one was uh the hockey players and they got two buddies of theirs who were uh at one point hockey players but had left to pursue acting uh and they played two hockey players you know dating the small town farm girls pulling up to the farm and and getting into a chirp battle with yeah. uh with uh Jared and Nathan, where they just go back and forth with insults, and uh, the Hicks, of course, decimate the hockey players. And uh, then they did another one, which was the produce stand, which is where uh, a guy, uh, uh, a filthy skid from the city, so, you know, all decked out in his emo death punk wear, uh, comes up to the produce stand asking for organic vegetables, and, you know, two small-town farmers go to town on uh, with the city guy. And uh, I actually first discovered like the sketches on Funny or Die. Okay. Uh, they'd been uploaded there uh, under the header of Canadian as fuck. And um, I stumbled across them and, and really enjoyed them and thought they were uh, terrific sketches. And then, you know, one day as it goes, I uh, get an email from my agent saying I've got an audition for this new show, Letterkenny. And uh, I was like, is this... Just the Canadian as fuck guys, and uh, they sent me some clips to, uh, of the sketches to watch, you know, to see what the guy's pacing is. And uh, I was like, "Oh fuck, this is this is Letterkenny problems. They're doing a TV show." That's so great. Normally, when people end up involved in projects, the people that end up involved in the projects that already exist are people who don't care about them. Yeah, you know what I mean, it's like you know, there's not many people in the Avengers movies actually read comic books. Yeah, so it's really lovely to kind of have a thing where you've gone. I'm really into this. Oh, is it that? Yeah, and you're yeah, perfect for it, possibly because you yourself are Canadian as fuck. It, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, I, so I got the audition came across at my desk, and I was like, you know, I think I'm actually going to really try for this one. Like, I think this is one I want to do. So I, I I put in the work because uh, their their dialogue is so fast. It's and so the, fast. The dynamic that that Nate and Jared already had was was so quick and i knew i knew i was going to have to fit into that mm-hmm. like uh i couldn't bring them something so different that it didn't fit in so yeah. i'd have to i had to take what i did and and uh and make it work for what they wanted to do so i i really watched the videos and i went over the script and just sped up my pacing um but, you know, while trying not to lose my, you know, my voice per se. Sure. Um, and, uh, uh, and it worked out. Um, they, I, I did the audition, and I, I only did one audition. There, there was no callback. And uh, the role was originally written with another actor in mind who actually, uh, Dan Petronievich, who plays McMurray on the show, uh, which is why the character was named Dan. It was named after mm-hmm. uh, Petronievich. And, uh, but, but they decided that they, they wanted, you know, the, the third guy to be something different from the other two guys. And, and, uh, uh, so being like large and, and hairy, uh, you know, I had a physically a different look. And then, you know, I had, the, the deep barrel voice and then when we really started going with Dan I, I sort of added the element of um, messing up 
messing up the occasional word here and there, which was kind of, they wrote sort of that small town accent because there's the distinct, when you get outside of the cities, there's, you know, there's a lot of plurals where they shouldn't be. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> and I, I think that's sort of the French influence uh, where, you know, like just over the years, so many, like it's just worked into the sort of Canadian lexicon because the, when the French when French people learn English, they tend to have plurals where they shouldn't be because because uh, of the way they pluralize words in, in the French language. Okay. Uh, so, like, you know, they would add an S to you where it doesn't need to be, and, and everyone in small-town Canada says yous. Okay, yeah, yeah. What can I get you guys for dinner? Yeah. And, uh, so there's a bit of that written into the script, but I, like, most of my stand-up career have been in small towns at this point because mm-hmm. that's where you don't make your money in big cities you play there maybe twice a year but it's it's going around and doing legion halls and, and hockey arenas that you really make most of your money uh, when you're starting out and every small town i'd gone to you meet a series of guys who just have no idea what words are supposed to be and uh, just like amazing malapropisms yeah. completely by accident. Uh, my buddy uh, texts me some still because he's got like a lot of friends who uh, from from small towns from out in the country and, and he goes, when I have these conversations but you're not going to believe <laughs> what, the, what they say sometimes. And it's like his one buddy, they were at a, 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 f- a funeral and his one friend's going down the line to the family and, and uh, saying, sorry for your lost. Sorry for your lost. Oh, yeah. gosh. Uh, uh, my, my one friend is like, because my buddy, uh, my, my buddy was walking with a limp and I asked him what was all, what was going on and he said that he bunged up his knee and the doctors got him on anti-flaminories. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. But you're, you're in a position now, presumably, where because you have, like, several series, it's been recommissioned again, is it? They've ordered another? Yeah, yeah. We're in the middle of our third season, okay. but uh, the first two seasons were six episodes, and season three is 18, so we're technically doing three seasons oh, amazing. in one year this year. And, and you're in that position that comedians are desperate to be in, where you're effectively playing a version of your stand-up persona. Yeah. So fans of the show will want to come and see you being you. It, it Squirrely Dan was described in the breakdown as a, a burly storyteller. Yeah. And uh, uh, some of the stories I've done on the show were real stories of friends of mine. Okay. Uh, that just hadn't made stand-up yet. Yeah. Um, so, so does it... And we must wrap up shortly, but just, oh, yeah. just to, to pull it together, does that mean that you're now, there is kind of pressure on you, or do you feel any pressure to go, there's an opportunity here to really take the stand up to the next level and not spend another 17 years writing the next album? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm recording another album this year. Oh, amazing. Already. And uh, we're actually we're putting together a Letterkenny live tour. Oh man, that's going to be and, fun! And taking the show on the road—that's a real year. dream. Get the character you can play that's like you. And well, the the best part is I'm doing the character, but I'm also doing stand up on the show, so Amazing. I get to do both. 
and and uh, we we had some debate on how to play it, but uh, I was like, I want Kate Trevor Wilson to stand it because they were like we were like writing in a joke that I was my own character's identical cousin, and I was like, no, fuck it, like. Squirrely Dan is Squirrely Dan. K. Trevor Wilson's K. Trevor Wilson. And actually in the live show, I do jokes as Squirrely Dan about not being a very big fan of K. Trevor Wilson. Yeah, that's smart. That's a really smart way to do it. Uh, because there is a danger there that you yeah. become too enmeshed in it. Like, uh, at the end of the show, because Mark Ford and I do stand-up on the show, he plays the hockey coach okay. at Letterkenny. So we both do stand-up and then I do sort of scenes from the show with uh, Nate and Jared. And Jared, at the end of the show, goes, you know, another round of applause for Mark Forward. And I go, yeah, but that K. Trevor Wilson wouldn't shut the fuck up. And uh, it gets a good laugh from the crowd, but like I, I, I get to do both. And, right. and the idea is that doing the Letterkenny live tour uh, will then help me do my own, will move my show from the clubs into theaters. And then I get to do my own my own tours after that and uh and then i can uh you know make more money faster <laughs> yeah that's what it's about that's great so finally then do you have any are there any things you'd have done differently because it seems like you're in a really good position now you're in a really strong position you're respected as a stand-up you've got the tv show the live tour to go with it but the, tr- the trunk of the tree is your stand-up comedy is there anything that you'd have done differently to get here? You know, it, like hindsight's always twenty twenty, but uh, the the stuff that that really pushed me along, there was no way of predicting that they were going to happen. Uh, and and also, it, it took me so long to get there that by the time I. I got there, I was overly prepared. Whereas it, if, if the success had happened quicker, I don't know if I would have been as ready for it mm-hmm. and, and able to capitalize on it successfully. Uh, so, no. That's great to hear. What would you have engraved on your comedy gravestone? Uh, I'm with stupid in an arrow pointing to the guy next to me. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Trev. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So that was Trevor. K. Trevor Wilson there. What a glorious uh, gentleman he is. You can still listen to uh, Sex Cop Fire Penis, if I remember correctly, was the name of that album uh, that we were discussing. Um, And uh, I highly recommend just checking him out on YouTube as well. There's umpteen little clips there. He's done hundreds of uh, of comedy festivals, all sorts of little televised appearances here and there. His first special, uh, Bigger in Person, debuted on the Comedy Network, so I'm sure you can track that down. He's also one of the judges in Roast Battle Canada um, and has done Jimmy K and bits and bobs like that all over all sorts of tv spots so check him out he's just a joy thank you very much to kate trevor wilson for coming on the show uh, thank you to you the listener for waiting five years for me to get the episode out um and uh thank you to nathan for producing the show nathan wood uh thank you to jake crossland for logging it and uh pete dobbing is your podcast consultant who will be joining me on our mission to austin texas Uh, Also, this show exists purely to stimulate uh, the personal growth of Mr. Brett Goldstein. That's all for now. I will speak to you soon. But uh, now I'll post Amber at you. 
So go away or stick around for that. Bye for now. So let me briefly thank everybody that came along to the Leicester Comedy Festival show that I did, which was rescheduled after uh, I got COVID and maintained an impressive viral load, which meant that uh, for some reason when I got COVID, I thought, you know, it says uh, if you test negative after five days, if you test negative two days concurrently, then uh, or consecutively, one after another concurrently. That's at the same time, isn't it? Don't do two at the same time. That'd be wrong. Basically, if you do two negative tests over 48 hours, you can go. So for some reason, I just thought, well, I I don't feel like I've got it much. Uh, I dare say I'll be out of here on day five. Um, But it was not to be. Uh, I uh, ended up being completely COVIDed for 10 days. So apologies if you were one of the people who was going to do one of the things, if you're going to attend one of the many things I had to cancel. Um, And thank you very much if you you came back to... um, Uh, If you came back to that Leicester Comedy Festival show, exciting news about Edinburgh, but nothing I can say, but exciting news about Edinburgh. So that's good. Um, And um, not for any real reason, but, you know, just I'll wait until we're officially releasing something. Going to need a title. Um, So uh, that is all hands to the pumps, which I think is going to make me feel a bit more like a human being. (laughs) I, I hope. I've just been absolutely laced and riddled with anxiety of late. I'd been doing really well. And then for some reason, I've, I think it was having COVID. And then I'll tell you what it was. It was a week or 10 days of COVID and being at home and thinking, I mean, God, if you'd seen me tweeting on day one going, hey, guys, tell me your favourite time travel movies. Um, and then uh, everyone kindly did that. And I watched uh, half of one movie and then my entire family got COVID and we suddenly kicked into a very different version of isolation. Um, just on the subject of what people can get up to with their isolation, I saw on Twitter today that John uh, Robertson, dear John Robertson of The Dark Room and a friend of the podcast, uh, at Robotron on social media and probably Twitch as well, almost certainly, um, raised a, over £100,000 sterling for charity over the last two years. What an absolute hero. And I was looking at that going, God, why didn't I do that? And then I thought, oh no, I've got children. But that's no excuse, is it, when people are putting themselves out there and, you know, it's that's a mindset thing, isn't it? Anyway, I started off talking about feeling anxious. And now I'm wobbling that other people are doing more work for charity than I am. But all I'm saying on that brief tangent there is bloody well done, John. Isn't that incredible? What an achievement. You should definitely follow him across all forms of thing. Um I had COVID for 10 days and then I came out of that that sort of dovetailed with half term. And so I've been doing loads of parenting for half term. I feel like I've barely worked and I think that's why I've gone mad. So let's call that resolved. Thank you, listener, for allowing me to reach that conclusion, giving me a focus to say that out loud and let me reach that conclusion. Now, this won't be the the first time I've said this during a post-amble, but am I going fucking mad? Is there is it healthy to sit in a cellar, which and I don't know if I've mentioned this before, Every so often when I've been doing kind of webcam based things over the last two years, I've been whinging about the fact that I have to sit and work in my cellar because I live in a house in Bristol that my wife owns. And as a result, we've got a cellar. And I only realised very, very recently that it's a boast if you're talking to someone in London. Um, I've been going, oh, poor me working in my cellar. And anyone listening on the London end of it is thinking, ooh, hark at him with his cellar. But I'm sitting in it now. And I've done everything, I, not everything I can, but most things I can to make it livable. It's bloody freezing. And um, I just think I'm sitting in it quietly going mad on my own. And I've got a horrible feeling that were I to be writing some sort of as yet unannounced Edinburgh show, 
um, then I would, um, there's a horrible feeling that day one, I'd get up there and kind of look in my notebook and go, oh, it just says <laughs> all work and no play over and over and over and over again. Because I think I might be losing my mind. I don't know. Are these post ambles? Hey, are you a, a qualified psycho- uh, psychological uh, professional? <laughs> a professional in the terms of psychology, uh, not simply a psychological professional, because aren't we all? Um, but is this healthy to be sitting, talking to people that aren't even here, alone <laughs> in my cellar? I don't know. Is this is the oh, this is what I was going to talk to you about. I was going to say, is this it? Is this the famous podcast burnout? Because blow me tight. It's been 10 years and I know I haven't post ample for all of them, but I don't know if it's helping me keep my mind together or actively uh, helping it fall apart. Maybe I should script these. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's just laziness and the fact that I'm not scripting my little. I, th- I like my private chat with you at the end of the episode. Um. I don't want to script it. I could probably I could probably do a couple of bullet points. But anyway, you would miss out on and I have no data. I'm sure I could find it, but I dared. No data on how many of you even listen to this bit, but bloody well done if you are, because I don't make it easy for you. Um I I uh, I've messed up the timing. This is it. My mind's falling apart to the extent that along with doing some work in London this morning where I didn't know there was a tube strike and I got the wrong hotel. I was being all clever with the hotel so that I could just walk to the venue in two minutes and I ended up accidentally getting a venue a a half hour walk away and then panicking there was no public transport running. And it's quite a fun way to be in London when literally everyone in London is on the street because there's no public transport. So much as I missed that fair city, it was nice to, to do that. And then I finished, I concluded that engagement and had to get from Bank to Paddington, which is four and a half miles on foot. And I had to drag a suitcase the entire way. But it's a good good time to listen to that Jim Gaffigan album because I do find it very hard to sit down and listen to a thing. I mean, everyone does. No one sits there like some bloke in a art house movie putting on their headphones and just going to listen to an album do you do that that's always seem mad to me that's as mad as relaxing in the bath totally impossible um so uh so i got two birds three birds with one stone i traveled from a to b did that day's exercise piss off four and a half and, and a half an hour there's got to be five miles of walking dragging a suitcase that's at least equivalent to a hit workout or a you know some sort of uh gentle uh yoga with adrienne experience so if it doesn't count as excellent exercise, it's certainly no worse than uh, my current daily practice. Um, so I did that. And then I also listened to the Jim Gaffigan thing. So that was great. Really, I really recommend Mr. Universe. Properly, properly funny. Um, but the point that I'm making, oh, it was, that was an example of how my mind's falling apart. And another example is this. I had meticulously planned the release schedule of this podcast such that episode 400 would go out next week at the same time as this show turns 10 years old. And I fucked that up as well. So I basically, uh, I've got this three more episodes now. And so the timing would never have worked. And I can't understand how I've done it. But what it amounts to is that next week is going to be Mystery Guest X, who I will not say because they're not yet in, in the can. But once they are in the can... I will immediately rush that episode out. And that's someone who should have been on the pod for a long time. So that would be fun. Um, And then we'll do Mr. Jim Gaffigan, assuming that everything in the South by Southwest uh, goes well. And then we will do Dulcie Sloan. And then it will be episode 400, which I think will be released on the 31st of March, which at least means I'm in the 10th birthday month 
So that means I just sort of scraped it and that's technically a win. But what it means is that next week when I should be celebrating with you the 10th birthday of the show, I'm just going to have to shut up about it. You know how hard I find that. So we'll have to wait until the end of March. And then what are we going to do by way of the birthday celebrations? The episode with Rob is in the can and it's a two hour doozy. So I'm not concerned about that content wise. It's got everything. It's got, you know, Rob's culture vulture appraisal of what's happened in comedy over the last 30 or 40 years. That's brilliant. Um, and some really good stuff about running and slogging and endurance and, and, and commitment and all sorts of great, great episode. Really pleased with it. And of course, Rob, you remember, was, was my uh, guest for episode one. So it's a lovely sort of 10 year, 10 year on thing. Um, but is there, I mean, should I, should I get a cake? <laughs> what do you do? How does one celebrate the 10th birthday of a podcast? Fortunately, thanks to me cocking up the release schedule, we have time to find out. So please, answers on an electronic postcard to Stuart at ComediansComedian.com or indeed uh, via at uh, ComComPod on Twitter. Don't bother with Instagram. I exist there, but I can't bear to look at it. And um, uh, ditto TikTok, on which I don't exist. Uh, and do remember, you can get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Uh, if you're a business person and you want me to come along uh, and talk brilliantly uh, about resilience from the perspective of the comedy industry and comedians, um, then uh, find me on LinkedIn and get in touch or just email me, stuart at comedianscomedian.com. Because that at the moment is largely everything that's keeping me sane. <laughs> um, I don't think, ultimately, I don't think my mind's falling apart. But I tell you what, it, it takes two weeks of only half working and only half achieving to suddenly kick down the, the house of cards that is my fragile mental state. And um, and suddenly I'm literally biting my fingernails. So um, if anyone has any uh, any advance on some hilarious looking uh, polyvagus nerve stretching exercises that I encountered on YouTube recently, send them my way as well. Um, that'll do for now. Have a wonderful uh, life. And uh, let's hope that all the worst things in the world uh, that are happening at the moment don't become even worse, as they might. Uh, love to you and your loved ones, and I'll speak to you, the universe willing, next week. Thanks for listening. Um.